Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. We're now into week four of Elon Musk's rocky takeover of Twitter. And after firing a majority of staff, the app is miraculously still loading. But as researchers note an increase in white nationalist and anti-Semitic content, all in the name of Musk's stated pursuit of free speech, is it possible for legitimate organizations to safely use Twitter? And in soccer, the liberal world's ire has been focused on Qatar for the last two weeks, with the FIFA World Cup in full swing. Criticism of the Qataris has come from many angles, prompting FIFA president Gianni Infantino to try and keep attention on the field. Is it a fair request? I'm Adam Owen, joined today for a special panel edition by my colleagues Tasha Carradine, Colin McDonald, and Danielle Parr. This is Political Traction. Great. So, Colin, Danielle, Tasha, thanks for joining us today. We're now into week four of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And after firing a majority of staff, the app is miraculously still loading. Tasha, I'm going to throw the first question to you. As a prolific tweeter, maybe one of the more prolific tweeters in the firm, you're used to receiving a lot of toxicity online. You, you've probably seen it all. Have you noticed a change in the past in the past month? I haven't really noticed um, the level of toxicity personally going up. I have I have seen um, anecdotally uh, other people saying that they feel things are more hostile. I've also read that it has been. But one of the things I have noticed is a drop off in followers. Um, I've lost at this point, I would say almost uh, 2,000 followers. And that is huge. Um, that's about 10% of what I had. And I can only think it's because they are migrating to other platforms. This has never happened before. And I think that there's a sense of inevitability that was created that Twitter might disappear. People trying to jump ship to other places like Mastodon and Hive. Um, but I think that you know, the, the problem with those platforms is that they don't really work the same way as Twitter. When you're used to Twitter as, as a tweeter, as you said, you're used to being able to engage with people in a certain way. And I think that that is continuing, albeit, like I said, um, there are definitely people who are jumping ship or who are banding the platform for whatever reason they, they may have. But toxicity isn't one that I have personally seen go up. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I use, I use, Twitter pretty pretty sparingly. I, I'm one of the, the the eggs on there, but I wonder is is it is it even possible to safely use Twitter? Because that's one of the main ways that companies, uh, teams, organize any organization uses to get its uh, to get its message out. And it, it's it's an owned platform as opposed to uh, having to go through through the media. Is is there an increased risk now for brands to brands or organizations to play in these waters where uh, they, you know, their their product release might end up sitting next to some somebody de denying the election. I think that I think well, so far you've seen fifty percent of advertisers apparently have jumped ship from Twitter. They have left. So clearly, brands are feeling are very concerned for exactly the reasons you said. Um, how widespread has that problem been? Um, well, we've seen that one of the things Twitter has done, which facilitates this kind of, um, you know, hatred or posting of, of all sorts of strange things uh, or hostile things is they've created the Twitter blue where anyone can pay to be, to be verified $8 a month. Um, that created a situation where people were impersonating others, where they were able to spread 
uh, hateful messages with, with more impunity. Um, like I said, personally, I didn't see a lot of that, but you read that it was happening. So for advertisers, for companies, it is certainly very concerning and many have left already. That said too, Twitter is not necessarily a place where, um, you get a wide audience. It is a niche market. It really is it's about 1%, I think, of the traffic. Uh, globally, you get a lot more on other places, um, such as Facebook, for example. But the thing with Twitter is it's a news, it's sort of known as the place you go for news information. So that is the thing that advertisers obviously mine is that they can they can reach that particular segment of the, of the long tail, if you will. Um, if that segment goes away, I'm not sure where they'll find it. So I think that we that would probably explain why some of them are hanging in there. But yeah, there is that concern that you could potentially damage your brand if you're positioned in a, in a way that's next to something extremely negative. Yeah, and I think actually it's probably a similar thing for users, individual users and not just brands, right? The brands are the first ones who have to make that stay or go kind of decision about is, you know, what, what signal am I sending by staying on Twitter? you balanced with the, you know, the benefits they may they may get from the audience. But I think, you know, the audience themselves are saying, you know, maybe it's time I jump ship and I have to walk with my feet. I have to show that I don't support this. I'm not a, you know, a Trump supporter, whatever it is. And with the polarized kind of political culture, particularly in the US, I think that his choices are going to lead to that too. And I think there's really going to be a splitting of the audience and people deciding that they can't stay because it makes them look bad. And the other thing I would say is that I have a lot of clients who just or don't want to engage, like they're avoiding social media now where they have to potentially deal with all the vitriol. And they're sort of saying, well, how about we just post a press release? Um, so it's kind of a bit of a 360, I guess, back to where we were before. Back to the good old days, Danielle. Uh, I mean, I guess <laughs> the, only, the only thing I would add there is uh, to one of the points that Tasha made, uh, you know, until there's somewhere else to go that provides the same reach into that niche. Like the reason that, that a lot of Folks, as we pointed out, that they go to Twitter to spread news is because news and politics folks overwhelmingly are overrepresented on on the platform. So until there's something else that um, that replaces that, that doesn't involve going back to the newswire, um, then it's probably going to continue. Because the other, like, it's not as though this has just become a really uh, toxic and uh, at times very, you know, for your mental health, at least dangerous place for for a lot of people to to engage. We've been having a version of this conversation uh, for a number of years now. It's it maybe is amplified now because of both who Elon Musk is and and because he's he's allowed a few people back onto the platform. But you know, it's just kind of a case of in some ways, you know, a return to where Twitter was a couple of years ago, not to kind of overstate it, but I guess the point is it's not this isn't new and novel. It's um, it's a continued progression of what's been a pretty challenging environment for some types of commentators and some types of commentary uh, for a really long time. Yeah, I, one thing I've I've been picking up on both as an advertiser and as people as, as in the advertising community, one of the messages that, that Elon put out there is that advertisers are bailing because they're too woke or they're scared of his uh, his free speech his free speech agenda. But really, what's happening is is well, he fired so many people that nobody's answering our phone call when we want to when, when we want a campaign to run on time. Uh, I was I was talking to a friend over the weekend who uh, works closely with a social team at a uh, major Canadian financial institution, and, and she was saying that over the past three 
three weeks, she's had three different account reps at Twitter. Um, and every time she sends an email asking whether a campaign is serving properly, if she gets an email from a different person saying, I'm handling your account now after like after days of not not hearing anything. So there's a brand risk, obviously, if you put an advertisement up, the last thing they want is risk. Um, there's the brand risk of your your advertising being seen next to something, uh, something horrible. But there's also the risk to the client when you say, I'm going to run however many hundreds of thousands of dollars of advertising over a set period of time, you want to be able to fulfill on that to your clients and and make sure that your client knows that uh, that that money is going to be spent. And if if you don't have that assurance, then you you take it to a different a different platform, a person who can cash your order and 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 run your uh, run, run your advertising. I'd love to get get your your thoughts on on what happens to to political organizers if if Twitter becomes uh, untenable or becomes di- difficult to use. Obviously, we were talking about organizations, established organizations, but for movements like Me Too, going back to the Arab Spring t- 10 or 15 years ago, there are a lot of different movements that got started on Twitter. And I wonder, are we even capable of positing wh- where those next movements will will happen if not on Twitter? Uh, I'll jump in. If I can, because I think that that has been the the big challenge personally, Um, you know, the other platforms that are being touted as substitutes, such as Mastodon and Hive, I've I've gone and looked at them, I've opened accounts, and it's sort of like walking around in a party where you don't know anyone in the dark going, hey, there's somebody here that, that, that I might recognize that I could talk to. It's a starting all over again feeling. And I think for a lot of political people, it's very frustrating. Um, So I think that you know, that for, for, for its own reason might be why a lot of people are still clinging to Twitter because they know how it works. They know they can find people. Um, but if it does become unworkable because of staffing issues and other things that are mentioned, if the platform just, you know, collapses under its weight in a sense, because there's not enough people to run it properly, then I don't know where people will go. It could be decentralized. I mean, we think they're, you know, we think of Twitter as the be all end all, but there's, there's platforms within um, different communities too. Like think of Weibo and WeChat and other platforms that people use um, that are less common in the sense of to a large group of people or, or the, the large polity, but are subsets. And we might see that. We might see a breakdown of groups talking to each other for particular communities or particular issues, but not engaging in the way Twitter was or is, which is a large platform for a lot of people with different views who like to fight each other, let's be honest, and get attention for it. Um, So it might, you know, it might just become a decentralized situation. And that would be harder, I think, for, for movements to organize or to get themselves seen. I think it's, it's interesting, right? We are all of a certain age. And so we like Twitter with the, with the words and, you know, it's like the newspaper for you know, social media newspaper for like people in their 40s. Like the thing is, we're not going to decide what comes next, right? Like it's it's going to be younger people who want to engage politically, who are going to make things happen on other platforms. We're just going to have to adopt whatever it is they decide is happening. Like my kids are not on Twitter, you know? And so I think it's already, it was already a bit of a dinosaur. Like everything has a bit of a, it's like a club, you know? And it has a time and a place and then it becomes a bit like. We get our jokes as screenshots from Instagram, which themselves are screenshots from TikTok. Like like we know our, we know where we are on the waterfall of, of, of memes and pop culture that we're laughing today at the things that are our, our 20 year old colleagues were laughing at uh late last week well if you remember vine vine used to be a thing i remember that 
my stepkids years ago, it was the king thing for teenagers was Vine. Vine died on the Vine, it disappeared. But this kind of, you know, visual media, I think TikTok actually, um, even though I, I have issues with the app um, personally, politically, but I think it is the place where a lot of younger people are engaging and they're engaging politically there as well. There's a bunch now, there's likely to be a lot of unemployed, but, but living off severance, uh, former Twitter uh, employees who are kicking around in, uh, you know, in the Bay Area. And maybe some great new product is going to come out of out of that group that, you know, because as Danielle has kindly pointed out, because of our advanced ages on this uh, on this panel, we are incapable of even imagining. Well, I look forward to it. I hope I hope that it doesn't have the uh, the security issues uh, that uh, Tasha uh, alluded to on on TikTok. We'll see what uh, what comes next, and then maybe uh, maybe next season the podcast will be on on that platform. Who knows? We're gonna do a dance. That's there's going to be music. It's going to be great, Adam. It's just going to be if I dance on my longboard. That's the uh, that's that's what I'm going to. Oh, you're younger than we are, clearly. Let's let's talk about about FIFA, about the World Cup. Um, These games have been heavily criticized for being in Qatar, a nation justifiably criticized for its treatment of everyone from LGBT people, women, and the South Asian migrants who made these stadiums. Uh, FIFA president Gianni Infantino asked players to essentially leave their politics at the door. Uh, I wanna wanna first ask Colin, is that a fair ask? So I think when you're FIFA, anything is a fair ask because FIFA sort of, you know, one thing that has come out of this World Cup cycle is a cottage industry and people exposing the like multi-layered corruption and history of of, of, of entitlement that, that accompanies FIFA or that accompanies FIFA. So I think for Infantino to make any demand of players or sponsors or anyone in the sport in his mind is entirely fair and totally within the lane that he has carved out for himself. What exactly was Qatar doing hosting this tournament then in the first place? Like, shouldn't they be expecting this backlash? So, I mean, a lot has been, there's been a lot of talk and a lot has been written about this over, over the years. Um, it is clear that the Qataris saw themselves as trying to punch in the same weight class and, and above the weight of their neighbors. Um, you know, the uh, in the UAE, they had bought Manchester City, uh, and uh, Emirates is sponsored on every uh, every major not every major T-shirt, but a lot of the major teams have got the Emirates as a sponsor. Qatar was trying to make a statement as a very small, right? We're talking about a country of two hundred and fifty thousand uh, citizens, um, but about three million people, and uh, and a lot of that population growth has happened because of the foreign workers over the last. 10 years uh, and they were trying to make a statement punch above their weight and kind of carve out some space for them uh, in their neighborhood as much as as much as anything else. And I think it's actually really unfair to the athletes. And it was kind of the same with the Olympics in China too, that we, we had the same conversations and, you know, governments, okay, well, we're, we're, you know, we're only going to send two people instead of a whole contingent or whatever. And they try to sort of have their cake and eat it too. And the athletes are left in a very difficult position because they just want to compete, right? They like the team Canada to make it to 
the World Cup. Like they don't want some stupid boneheaded decision by the the FIFA board to to derail their chances at you know playing in the World Cup in the same way that like the bobsled team didn't want to miss their chance they've been working on for their entire adult lives. So it's really unfair to the athletes. Like they do just want to focus on the sport. But why are we continually putting them in these positions where they have to they feel like they have to choose or they have to do something you know to just to be able to compete. So maybe the yeah. better spokespeople for that angle would would be the the underdog teams like Canada, the Korean national team. I wouldn't put Lionel Messi or uh, Cristiano Ronaldo up and, and say, poor, poor Cristiano Ronaldo, all he wants to do is, 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 is play football. I wonder if those major draw athletes themselves have uh, a bit more of, a, of an obligation or, or responsibility, to, but I guess they're also beholden to FIFA itself, aren't they? Well, it goes to the whole question, um, and we see this a lot for for clients too, is how much do you step out and take a stand on social issues? And this is the ultimate platform for soccer players is that, you know, it's the the nameless ultra of soccer, right? And the world is watching it. it is It is, I would say even, you know, the Olympics... Yes, the Olympics is, is I'm not sure if, if more people actually watch the World Cup than the Olympics, but the Olympics has traditionally been the place that's been politicized for sport. Um, in part, I think because so many countries, more countries in the World Cup participate. So everyone has has a potential say in it. Um, and you've seen boycotts, you've seen uh, attempted boycotts, you've seen all sorts of different things over the years. Um, and the people who do suffer for that are always the athletes. Right. Either they, they can't go or because the issue comes up that affects them, it's going to affect them psychologically, too. Like it's so difficult to play at that level. I think with the, with the World Cup, though, um, it's the, the difficulty with Qatar is because, yes, it's, it's kind of like at the U.N., too. You've got a nation that is oppressive, very oppressive. Um, and yet at the UN as well, you have nations like Saudi Arabia that sit on human rights councils, right? And they're deciding human rights issues when they're violating them at the same time. Um, here, Qatar is supposed to be celebrating the wonders of sport, but yes, it, it has terrible violations against LGBTQ people, uh, against women, um, against foreign workers. So for athletes, it is a bind. Do they stand up and say something, do something, or do they simply play their sport that they want to play? And it is a very, I agree with Danielle, it is a very unfair burden to put on them. Um, but some of the higher profile ones may choose to take a stand. Um, I don't know if they, they would do that, uh, you know, individually or, or, or get together with others, because if you're individually, then you will personally potentially suffer as well for it. So it's really a Hobson's choice. It's a very unfair situation to put them in. I think the interesting part about the, the narrative arc of this one, though, has been for the longest time, most of the conversation around the human rights abuses was... Um, was focused on the foreign workers who had been brought in to build these, to essentially build a city that didn't previously exist, you know, in terms of Doha's infrastructure, all the stadiums, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're living in, in horrible conditions where uh, we're, we're essentially owned by their, by their employers. Uh, and some reports would say 6,500, 7,000 of them died in the in the building these scenes. So that was there was a huge focus on that, right? And you would think uh, from the way that it has played out over the last couple of weeks, the first couple of weeks of the World Cup, 
in part, I think, and maybe it's maybe we're, we're, none of us are as smart as Infantino because we all thought it was a gaffe. But when he when he when they sort of came down hard on the on the rainbow armbands, and when he sort of said, you know, in his press conference that uh, everybody is being unfair and every country has their um, social norms and we're being you know discriminatory and talking about you know life in Qatar the way we're talking about it. They shifted it to something where I think the players are probably more like to to be honest, nobody's talking. I, I'm consuming a lot. I mean, big soccer fan. I'm consuming a lot of World Cup. Everybody's talking about the armbands, the rainbow armbands. Everybody's talking about the rainbow flags at the training pitches that some of the teams are putting up. Uh, the Ger- German minister wearing the armband. But we've moved it from shouldn't the players be advocating for workers' rights? Shouldn't they be? But is, is it that they're uncomfortable as many of them as multi-million dollar athletes? Is that a subject they don't want to take on? So as much as we, you know, we say it's a burden on them, they seem to have been willing to embrace the LGBTQ plus very real, very legitimate challenges that exist, uh, abominations that exist within that within that country. But everyone seems to have sort of done a bit of a soft backpedal away from the, the the horrendous working conditions uh and and the loss of life that's happened in building these stadiums and i wonder if that's the players also picking and choosing which narrative is easier for them to uh to take a stand on and which one is going to play better in their in their home audience i i think you're 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 100 right if you look at um not to conflate uh diasporic people and people of color but if you if you look at the way that people in Europe talk about Syrian migration, the way that they talk about uh, people from South uh, South Asia, even even uh, uh, in in Britain, uh, uh, a Tory cabinet minister of South Asian descent, Suella Braverman and and Rishi Sunak, like they're they are poster children for both uh, the possibilities of South Asian communities in in Britain and also leading the charge for keeping as many South Asian people out of Britain as possible right now. It's a much it's much more cut and cut and dry in Europe uh, to talk about LGBT issues than it is to talk about uh, people from Africa, the Middle East and, and South Asia um, and their place in uh, in, in Europe. I mean, the, I guess the silver lining in all of this is that we're actually talking about these issues. And, you know, how much do people know about Qatar? Do people, you know, b- before this happened? So in some ways, you know, I, if we are to take, and I try to be a bit of an optimist, like if, if we look at it that way, um, it's probably good that we've, we've sort of turned the microscope on some of these issues a little bit and that we're having these kinds of conversations and that countries like that realize that, there is a, a price to pay. I mean, maybe they still get to host the World Cup, but it, it comes with a lot of hassle and a lot of, you know, need to, to sort of open the kimono a little bit about what's actually happening there. It, it's interesting, too, just in the context of what we were talking about before. Like, it took sponsors, what, a week, a couple of weeks of Elon Musk owning Twitter for them to start, start leaving. Nobody, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I've missed something, nobody's jumping ship on FIFA. Nobody's jumping ship on the World Cup. Uh, the biggest brands in the world are flashing around on those those sideboards at each of the games. So clearly there's a calculation there. Um, and I think it goes to a little bit to what Danielle said earlier, which is that we kind of have a version, not to sound too dismissive, 
but we kind of have a version of this. I mean, the last World Cup was in Russia. The Olympics were in Beijing. Um, you know, a, a World Cup went to South Africa when, uh, you know, there's a huge there's a number of arguments for why it should be in an African country. But did Africa really have the resources to spend on that kind of infrastructure when they had, you know, the same thing with Brazil? So we have a version, differing types. We have a version of this conversation every time in the lead up to these events. Then we all get really excited about the sport that we're watching and the things that are unfolding. And then we kind of we kind of move on to the next one. Well, let's also say money talks because the billions of eyeballs that are on this uh, World Cup around the world are what motivate the advertisers. So they figure there's more harm in leaving than in staying. And that is that, you know, he's speaking out on issues like um, the LGBT uh, community's abuses there is, I think, yes, politically safer in a way or more understandable than it is speaking out about the workers whose plight most of the world probably doesn't even know about, doesn't, you know, and the abuse of, of workers is, it's pretty egregious what happens in some Middle Eastern countries, yes, but it is not a common cause that has been advanced in the rest of Europe or other countries that are watching. Um, so they cannot, they're not going to, it's not going to be as popular, horrible as that is to say, to speak out on it. So for companies that are engaged, you know, they see athletes speaking out on the one issue, but it's not enough to keep them away from the economic motive of, of being part of this huge World Cup. Is it possible for liberal democracies to host big sporting events? Do, do they have the same ability to bid and fulfill the vision of a massive international sports contest. There's an interesting argument that you almost have to be a, a strong man who's stealing money from, from the treasury in order to be able to, to put on a, something like FIFA or, or the Olympics. Well, they have. I mean, the Olympics have been held in Western countries for many, many, many years. I'm trying to think the last time, when was the last time the Olympics were held in Vancouver? Vancouver, yeah. Vancouver, so, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of, of like Placid for the for the Winter Games in Atlanta. Um, I think that sure, if you want to build infrastructure where there was none before, if you're a dictatorship that can conscript people, you may unfortunately be in a better position to do that. Horrible as that is to say, um, not meaning to sound like Justin Trudeau here, um, but I was it is make uh, the same joke. I know, right? It's uh, no, but but the point is, there's no reason why Western democracies can't. It's just, I think in Western democracy, what you do see is you see a push, a greater pushback sometimes from from civil society groups, like you did in Toronto, for example, when when there was talk of having um, uh, the Olympics here. People just there are groups that will say no, it's too expensive. We should spend the money on other things. You won't necessarily get that in a country like Qatar or China. And Adam, clearly, you're forgetting about the massive sporting success that was the Pan Am, Parapan Am Games hosted in this very fair city in 2015. You're right. I, I completely forgot about it. It's all about scale. Well, everybody, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Thank you thanks for having us. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Zeus Eden and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Holden Wine. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>